0: Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Uh, as we uh, refer to it as Real Estate 320. Today happens to be show number 11, and today we're going to be talking about state regulation of lending practices. And one of the things I want to remind you, as I've done many, many times before, is that you have your first midterm exam coming up very quickly. Uh, I don't know how many times I need to mention this, but I'll keep mentioning it. I want you, I believe there's 100 questions on that study guide. That study guide is exactly like the first midterm exam. You should have downloaded that, looked up all the answers, and be prepared to take that first midterm exam. Remember, we want you to get 100 on that exam, not 95 or 90 or 96, but a 100. And there's really no reason why you should not be able to do that if you just do exactly what I'm telling you to do. Download it, look up the answers, and work real hard at uh, finding them within the book or maybe possibly add another resource uh, because there are some resources that I'm putting up here on the inter- uh, in the course Blackboard website under web links. Anyway, what we want to do now is we're going to be moving back and forth. A couple things that I want to do today is we're going to be talking about, we refer to this as the state, uh, state regulation of lending, but what we're going to do is talk about what the federal government does a little bit, or refer back to that, also in relation to the state. So you have an idea that we have two different sets of major laws that we deal with. One happens to be federal regulation, which we spent the last chapter discussing, and today is state regulation. You're going to find out as time has gone by that the federal government has slowly but surely taken over some of the uh, legal requirements or law requirements or put laws into place that re, um, that, the, that the states used to take care of. And mainly the reason why they're doing that is because of the fact that as the mortgage market has matured, what's ended up happening is, is we've developed these organizations such as Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, in the farming area, Farmer Mac. And what these organizations are doing is setting things like guidelines, uh, what are the requirements that you, what information do you need to collect from consumers when you're getting ready to make a loan, how do you figure out whether they're, they're qualified for the loan, what kinds of loan documents you need, how high of an interest rate you can charge, how much you can lend on a property. So because of that, the federal government is getting more and more involved in the lending of money on real estate, both uh, residential and commercial. So what I'm going to do today is talk a little bit about what, as the book opens up, about what the federal government does. I am going to do something, and don't think you're in the wrong class, when I show you something called the United States Constitution, because I have a link In the Blackboard website, that talks about the Constitution, and it links to a web page or a website called Wikipedia, which is an online uh, encyclopedia type of uh, document so that you can go look things up, but it'll talk about the U.S. Constitution. I want to do that because the book is talking about it and give you a link to get there. So what I'm going to do is move over here in a minute to my old friendly document camera, I'll be pulling up the first page in the book and be talking a little bit about what's on that page, and then probably from there I'll go somewhere along the line over to uh, the Internet and show you what, uh, what the definition or what the U.S. Constitution website for Wikipedia looks like and talk a little bit about that, because immersed within these chapters is a lot of discussion about the U.S. Constitution, a lot of discussion about uh, specifically the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments. I want to show you where those are and how that's sort of laid out just briefly. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and move over here to the uh, document camera. And what I want to do is the book starts out in the beginning, and I want to read this to you and emphasize a few points so that it becomes familiar to you. This is, uh, in this case, Chapter 6. It says, This chapter will examine the role played by state governments in the lending process. You know, what role state governments pay versus what role federal governments play. The Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reserved all powers not specifically enumerated listed in the Constitution to the states. So essentially when I show you that, what it means is that if the federal Constitution did not specifically say, hey, we're we're responsible for that. Anything that they did not state in the Constitution is what the states are responsible for. So, for example, the federal government is responsible for having a military to to defend United States citizens. That's not something that the states do. The federal government coins and makes money. The states do not do that. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Uh, a read of the Constitution would make apparent to the reader that the states seemed to retain more powers than they gave up. Now, when they made the federal Constitution, that was one thing that was and always continuously is being wrestled with, is what, where does the federal government authority stop and where does the state authority start? And we're always wrestling between that. In fact... If you think about it, one of the biggest problems that we had during Katrina, which was the uh, which was the hurricane, was the constant argument and bickering between what the federal government was supposed to do and what the state government was supposed to do and what the city of New Orleans was supposed to do. So you constantly have this bickering between different entities, if you will. This is the same thing with, like, the police departments. When you're dealing with the police department, the FBI will want to do one thing and the sheriff department will want to do something else, and you start, and you think, well, wait a minute, I thought our job was to catch the bad guys, not argue between ourselves, but they do that kind of thing, okay? So, and a lot of it is political. Okay, so anyway, it said, In the beginning, Congress was content with the power to coin money, to provide a uniform money system through the establishment of the Bank of the United States, As we saw in the last chapter, federal interest in discrimination, consumer rights, and lending did not really begin until after the Civil War. So even so, what they're talking about there, even so, these topics were discussed, such as freedom of speech, you know, all kinds of things like that uh, that were discussed in the initial U.S. Constitution. What ended up happening is it wasn't until we had the Civil War and then after the Civil War that we really started to enact some legislation. What happened as a result of that? If you remember, nothing really took place of any major consequence until after we had the Great Depression, or the stock market crash in 1929, and then the Depression and 29-30, and in the 30 time frame leading up to the Second World War. And the reason why, as I've mentioned many times before, is because people don't make any changes unless there's some sort of a catastrophe. And the catastrophe that happened in the 29s and the 30s was huge unemployment, people losing the farm, losing the houses, all that kind of stuff took place. So it goes on from there, and it says, even then, the amount of federal uh, involvement was minor until the era of the Great Depression and later. It was left up to the states to develop laws that would protect consumers from usury. Usury happens to be with where we're charging more or a higher interest rate than would be normal to consumers. That's what we're talking about. That's the most simplistic definition I can give you of usury. But it was the states that were responsible for that. States also did things like develop develop mortgage and real estate laws and charter uh, local banking institutions. So those are the things that the state government does. <clears throat> for example, the state government is responsible for licensing real estate appraisers. They're responsible for licensing real estate agents, real estate brokers. Uh, they're uh, Down at the county level, they're responsible for having a recording system to record documents, such as grant deeds, deeds of trust, things like that. So, in other words, we're trying to figure out who has what power and what authority. So, anyway, after that, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a minute, and I want to take you to the, this website link that I have here. <clears throat> and one of the things that I also want to point out, too, is, is that you're going to find, as uh, time goes by, that, that the information that is contained in your book either becomes out of date, Or the book refers to certain things, but it doesn't cover it in any kind of great detail. So, for those of you that maybe want to be able to just sit right at your computer and be able to look stuff up like, you know, like this without having to go out and buy the books, go to the bookstore, go to the library, it's really a good resource. One of the things that they do have that I'm going to be showing you is something called Wikipedia. And it kind of gets that Pedia name from like the encyclopedia. And what it is, is it's a user um, defined and a user maintained encyclopedia system on the web. And for example, you can go on there, and if you have an interest in something that has to do with the topical area, uh, you can go ahead and add content to that topic. And then they have moderators that will take and moderate and make sure you're not putting up something that might be, you know, you know, not not correct, if you will. So here, underneath what we call our website links. I have under what I've referred to as our Chapter 6, in this case, State Regulation of Lending. The first thing I have is the United States Constitution. I just want to show you that I have it there. And uh, I think that this, I'll look it up on the TV to see how it looks on the uh, TV here in a minute. I think I may have to make the text a little bit bigger uh, so that you can see it a little better. Okay. Okay. This basically talks, if I can get this all working, talks about the U.S. Constitution, and I'll just quickly read it here. It just says, uh, the United States Constitution is the supreme law of the United States of America. It was adopted in its original form on September 17, 1987, 1787, sorry, it wasn't this past couple weeks ago, by the Constitution Convention in Philadelphia, that's where it was adopted, Pennsylvania and later ratified by this state-selected delegates representing the people of several states. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. The uh, you know the U.S. Constitution here. Let me see if I can scroll down without losing the place. Uh, when delegates in the nine states of the then 13 states ratified the document, it marked the creation of the union of sovereign states and a federal government for the to administer that union. Okay. Uh, it took effect on March 4th, 1789, replacing the weaker, less well defined union that existed under the Articles of Confederation. So this was, uh, uh, took place that. The Constitution of the United States is a. Gen- I can't pronounce that. Um, I cannot pronounce that. Dirty private hooker of the oldest federal constitution currently in use. I don't really know what that means. I didn't have time to look it up, but basically it's the oldest constitution, if you will. Uh, There is. What happens is after that, what will happen as you go down here is they talk about the history of it, the preamble, the articles of of the Constitution, which is basically talking about the powers of the different types of entities. So in other words, for example, what the legislature can do, okay, what the legislative power is, which is Congress, you know, the House and the Senate, if you will, the executive power, which would be the President of the United States, judicial power, which would be the Supreme Court, Okay. Uh, they talk about states' powers. Okay. They talk about process of amendment. In other words, how do you amend this thing called the Constitution with the idea in mind that it's a living document. When it originally started, we had 10 amendments to the Constitution called the Bill of Rights. Since then, we have a total of 27 amendments to the Constitution. So it has grown, and the concept is, is as we evolve as a society, And as a country, what will happen is we need to amend or enhance or improve this document. So the way we do it is by an amendment, and it talks about how we can amend the Constitution. Uh, After that, it talks about federal power, what power the federal government has, and then it talks about ratification. And then finally, when we get all the way down here, I'm trying to – let me just go back up to the top because it might be easier for me to find it this way – Um, we talk about the first ten Bill of Rights, which is right here. And remember, the first ten Bill of Rights is the first ten amendments to the Constitution, and the first one that they talk about in the book is the Tenth Amendment. And so I just want to point out where these happen to be. Okay, let me see if I can find this in here. This is like the First Amendment, okay, which was the Freedom of Speech Amendment, Freedom of the Press, The Second Amendment uh, was known as the the right to bear arms, where you can carry a gun to protect yourself, okay? Uh, But I'm going to go all the way down here to the Tenth Amendment, if I can find it down here, Ninth and Tenth Amendment. They stick the two of these together. The Tenth Amendment, which is located right here, provides, provides that powers that the Constitution has not delegated to the United States, pro- the Tenth Amendment provides that powers that the Constitution does not delegate to the United States and does not prohibit the states from exercising are reserved to the states. So this is the par- amendment in which we said, listen, if the federal government does not take care of it, then the states are responsible for it. Okay, and that's the Tenth Amendment that does that. Okay. Later on it said, um, or the people, the phrase or the people refers to the right of people within the respective states to pass state referendums. So the states can pass their own laws, if you will, if the federal government has not done it already. Now as we go down from here, down in here is the, uh, and I'm going to have to zoom back up here again, it's easy for me to find it this particular way, I'm going to go into the other uh, amendments, which is going to be the 11th to the 27th, and specifically your book talks about, let me see if I can find it here, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th amendment, okay? The thirteenth Amendment, as it talks about here, established abolishes slavery and grants Congress the power to enforce abolition. Okay? Now there's a lot more to it, but that's that that's what that one did. And that all has to go back to where we talked about the federal law where we have things such as people based on race can own property regardless of race, creed, color, national origin, all that all goes back to these basic tenets, if you will. Because the first Ten amendments to the Constitution did not talk about regulating banking, lending, or real estate. It wasn't, you know, so it's fr- from there. The, th- the 14th Amendment defines that the United States citizenship pro- prohibits states from abridging citizens' privileges or immunities and, and rights to due process and equal protection of the law, repeals the, th- uh, the three-fifths compromise that they had in the previous one. And finally, the 15th Amendment prohibits the federal government and the states from using citizens, race, color, previous status, or slave as a a qualification for voting. So those are the three amendments to the Constitution that they had. And I wanted to point that out because it just says it, but it doesn't tell you what it's about. And again, I would recommend that you would go there because that helps to understand who controls what, what, where the laws come from. Okay, anyway, I'm going to move back over here now. In a minute, I'll be switching back and um, to my document camera, if I can get this to come up. And one more, I think. Let me just see. Yes, okay. So anyway, what I'm going to do is go through this a little bit, talking about the uh, laws again. Um, You know... It does help that we have a historical perspective of why we got where we are today, to understand how we got there, because it makes us understand documents better. It understands the laws better. It understands how we operate better. So anyway, it says the United States was initially made up of a group of former English colonies. That's what we were that had become states within the Constitutional Union. It is therefore not surprising that they would, for the most part, adopt the British common law of legal, real property, and real property ownership. So all that's really saying is that if you come to the United States, as the settlers did, what they really knew was the English law. And so consequently, what they would do is they would use those laws that they were familiar with in order to create the new laws within the United States. Um, Beyond that, it says, um, uh, real estate is the ownership of physical land itself. That's what real estate is, physical land. Real property, though, consists of those rights that come with the ownership of real property. Okay, so you have some additional rights. Very often, real property rights are more valuable than the physical property itself. Real property rights are often stated as the following. These are the ones that we talk about like in real estate principles. For example, if you have real estate, you have the right to possess it, okay? You have the right to use it. You have the right to borrow money against it if you need to. You have the right to rent it out to others so you can rent or lease it out to somebody either for a day, a week, a couple hours, or years. Uh, You have the right to dispose of by either selling it to somebody else by will, you know, by dying and leaving it to somebody else or by transferring it. And transferring it could also be by, you know, for example, giving it, giving the property away and giving somebody a gift deed. So you have that right. You have the right to quiet enjoyment of the property. You have the right to exclude others. So you can put the sign up that says, you know, something like private property, don't come on my property, okay? You have the right to do that, okay, to just say don't come on, okay? You see that a lot of times in the... Uh, uh, specifically I'm thinking about in the country areas where people maybe don't live there all the time and they say private property, keep off, big dog will bite you and eat you up or something like that you know And then you have the right to do nothing at all, just just live there. That's it, okay. Now a couple of the things that they mention here is that the, they say these property rights are often referred to as a bundle of rights. An individual in control of these rights is said to own the property in fee simple. okay If you have all of those rights, and I know in real estate principles that we talk about different kinds of rights one may hold, like leasehold rights, fee rights, life estates, things like that. These rights are limited by the power of eminent domain under the Constitution. Okay, eminent domain means that the that the that gov- where the government has the right to come in and take private property if there's a benefit to the entire community, if you will, which is which is always, uh, there's just been some recent legislation, not legislation, but some recent court decisions that were uh, went through the United States Supreme Court that dealt with taking property, you know, for the benefit of the community. And they not only looked at, they started looking at things like the economic benefits. So that would be like, for example, we can take your property and your neighbor's property if we are going to be able to build a Walmart or a, or a, or a company or manufacturing business that's going to enable us to uh, provide jobs to the community in the past we talked about eminent domain usually when it dealt with the fact that we were going to put a freeway through and we said your house is right in the area of where we want to put this new road that's where the way we thought about it but this current um, legal cases that were uh, solved, uh, decided at the United States Supreme Court dealt with the taking of property if there was an economic benefit to the community as a whole okay so this is something that's not static it keeps changing also, if you own property, real estate, you're also governed by something called the zoning laws in most restrictions. So that also means that you just don't have the right to go ahead and build a five-story house without getting approval or build right to the property line or build a um, a business in a residential area. It's zoning laws that do that. Um, anyway, zoning laws. As our pioneering ancestors spread out outward in the territories, they brought this... Uh, uh, sense, a sensible system of ownership with them. This is the system of land and real property ownership throughout the United States and only minor variations in state by state, okay? Again, what we're doing is talking about a system. And then when we talk about estates, the highest estate that you can have is something called a fee simple estate. That's the highest level of an estate that you can have, okay? Fee simple. So they talk about that. There. Let me turn the page. Okay. Now, when you get ready to transfer property from one person to the other, and this is something, by the way, that varies depending upon what state you happen to be in. There are two types of deeds. In California, we use something called a grant deed. In other states, you use something called a warranty deed. The major impact in this is for you to know what the differences happen to be, also to understand what is, when you have a warranty deed, what is that, and when you have a grant deed, what is that? What kinds of responsibilities are placed on the owner that's getting ready to sell the property? Okay? So basically, they go down through here and they say, Deed's uh, title is a term that signifies the proof of ownership. The title to a property is based on the legal chain of documents that show ownership, interest, and transfers from one owner to the other. We always use this concept of a chain of documents, just like a chain, like a continuous chain. And whenever they do a title search or they're looking for something, they go back and chain the title. That means that one link attaches to the next, attaches to the next. If they find where they have an owner that bought a piece of property, but they can't find out, or for example, we find out that, for example, Pat Hogarty sold a piece of property, they may very well be looking at where did Pat actually come into title on the property. If they can't find that document, what that ends up being is, is it's a missing link in the chain. So what we're talking about here is that, you know, a title company, at least in California, goes back and establishes this relationship all the way back to when the property initially came into being. And that could be as a result of something such as a Spanish land grant, a Mexican land grant. It could be a U.S. land patent, whatever. Okay, so they establish that. Anyway. Going down from there, they talk about different kinds of deeds. The first deed they talk about is something called a general warranty deed. General warranty deed. And I'll show you near the end of this where I put some links, (coughs) if you will, in the um, Blackboard website that you can look this up. But a general warranty deed it says, in most states, general warranty deeds are the most commonly used deeds in real estate transactions. This is the deed that we use to transfer the property. When we sell it from one person to the other. Now it goes on from there and it talks about what a general warranty deed does. And the reason why we want to know this is because what's ending up happening is we're going to be dealing with two types of deeds. You know, I have to understand the differences between the two types of deeds. So, for example, it says here a general warranty deed offers the most complete warranty regarding the quality of the title, most complete warranty. The grantor, and remember the grantor is always the person selling the property or giving the property up, but the grantor warrants that the title he or she is conveying is free and clear of all claims except those specifically listed in the deed. Okay, so if, if it's not in the deed, that means it doesn't affect the property. Um uh, Specifically, the deed will guarantee free and clear legal title to the property that the grantor has the right to convey the property. In other words, what they're doing here in this case is you're saying that the grantor has the right to convey the property, meaning sell it or give it away, okay? And the grantor will compensate the grantee for loss of property or eviction if they discover that someone else has any claim on the property, meaning that when you, if you do not disclose it, And later on, it's found out that you sold the property or some some other title defect came up, that you're the one that's going to have to compensate that person that's the buyer because you did not disclose that to them. They could not make an informed decision. Now, they talk from there. They say a general warranty deed also transfer uh, uh, A general warranty deed covers all transfers of property from the original source of title to the present. So, in other words, what's happening here is you're not only guaranteeing from the day you owned it, but you're guaranteeing backwards, in other words, from the, from who you bought it from. So there's a lot more liability in this particular type of a deed. Uh, you also have certain things called special warranty deeds. Uh, this makes the same warranties as the general warranty deed, except that it limits the application of the defects to the title to those discovered under the ownership of the grantor. What that means is if something happened in the past that I would have no comprehension and no understanding that ever happened, then don't hold me liable for it. Only hold me liable for those things that I happen to know of since the time I took title to the property to the present. So in other words, if there was some other kind of thing that went on in the past, I may not know about that. So don't hold me liable for it. That's what they're talking about. Now the kind of deed that we use in California is something called a grantee. This is used in the, as I say, in the Western United States. Uh, this deed is only warranting certain things, and so I'm going to read this. And this, this again is really specific. It says the grantee transfers absolute legal title to the property. It is sometimes called a naked title deed. A grantee carries only two implied warranties. Implied meaning it's understood that it goes with it. They're not going to expressly give it to you. It's just implied. The first is that the grantor has not transferred the title to anyone, uh, anyone else at the same currently. So in other words, you, when you buy it, they haven't behind your back sold it to somebody else or given it to somebody else. Second, that the grantor is transferring the estate free of any encumbrances made by the grantor other than those disclosed to the grantee, which essentially means that unless I tell you, there's nothing, no problem with the property, okay? You've got the whole property. So that's what we're talking about, a grant deed versus a warranty deed. They go on from there, and they talk a little bit about title insurance, and what they essentially are trying to do here with the title insurance is to say, you know what, one of the things that we have here in the western states, or at least in California, we're specifically talking about California, is that we use title insurance. And title insurance is going back through, and it's looking at all those records. And it's looking for defects in the title, and it's looking for forgeries, and it's looking for a lot of other stuff. So with the title company, when you buy that policy of title insurance, that's actually uh, – protecting, if you will, the lender uh, who is giving you the loan on the property or possibly maybe if you decide to do it, the person that's buying it, okay? So anyway, um, it goes on from there. It says, the interesting thing about this form of transfer is that the deed does not state that the grantor is the owner of the property or that the property is not encumbered, okay? Okay? By debt or liens not made by the grantor. It merely implies that the grantor has not made a deed to others. That's all it really does. And that the grantor has not encumbered the property with debts or liens. Debts mean like uh, you borrowed money or mortgage liens would be like a mechanics lien. As a result... Um, as a result it is absolutely necessary to obtain a policy of title insurance at the time of any transfer however the beneficial result is that the title insurance company carries the full legal liability for any claims against the property rather than the grantor grantee or the previous owners so the title insurance company picks up all that responsibility and that's something that we do or, you know the in California so anyway that's kind of Beating that to death. Again, I've shown this so many times in other classes. This is an example of a grant deed, just so you know what they basically look at, look like. They typically will be prepared either by the title insurance company, the escrow officer, uh, the escrow office in the transaction, or possibly by the lender and basically showing this document. Usually, though, it's usually the title company that usually prepares this, the escrow officer that works for the title company that prepares it, and it's signed and notarized by the uh, signed by the owner of the property and notarized and then recorded at the county recorder's office. So that's what this document does. And it lets the whole public know that this property has been bought or sold and who's bought it. Now there are some other types of deeds, by the way, and remember this is all regulated at the state level. This is not regulated at the federal level. The federal government is not saying you must use a warranty deed or a grant deed, or they don't talk about a quit claim deed. They only talk. So the federal government is not involved with this. It's the state laws that involve with this. The next one that they talk about in here is something called a quit, Q U I T, quit claim deed. Quick claim deed doesn't really convey property from one person to the other. It really is where you say, I really don't have an interest in it, or I give the interest up. And so that's why it says something like this. It says, quick claim deed is most often used to remove items from the public record, such as easements or recorded restrictions. It merely says that the grantor is relinquishing any interest that he or she has in the property period that's it they're not warranting they're not guaranteeing thing in fact, they may not even know the depth of how much of an interest they're giving up totally they're just saying i'm removing my interest from the property for now and forever. The great, another type of deed that you're going to run into is something called a gift deed. A gift deed is where you're, for example, giving property to uh, like grandchildren, children, uh, charitable organizations, whatever. It's a way that you transfer property from one person to the other, and they call it a gift deed. By the way, if you have people that are going to give property from, say, uh um, parents to children or grandparents to grandchildren, keep in mind that there may very well be some income tax or tax consequences that you have to be aware of. So that's why people will sit down with their accountant and make sure that they, and that's all based on individual circumstances. In other words, one person could have some kind of a major impact and somebody else may not. So that's why they have to sit down and get the counseling to find out what they need to do. But basically, a gift deed is often used to transfer real estate to children or to other loved ones. Generally, no monetary legal consideration is required in the transfer of the property. Okay. One thing they do put out here, though, is they say a gift deed can be invalidated if it is discovered that it was used to defraud creditors. What they essentially mean is this, that if you owe money, and you hear people, I kind of refer to this as jailhouse lawyer kind of stuff, What you'll do is you'll have somebody that maybe looks at the fact that they're going to have a suit or that they have some creditors that are going to be coming after them, and what they decide to do is start to transfer the property out of their name into somebody else's name to try to protect their property. What they're saying here is if you do that, you can have where the deed is invalid becomes invalid because it's obvious that you're trying to keep that your property away from the creditors who you in reality may actually owe the money to. So that's what they're talking about there. You also have another kind of a deed called the sheriff's deed. And the sheriff's deed is used to transfer property that has been ordered to be sold by the court. So if you're if the court, as a result of a court action and the judge has said, that's it, you need to sell that property to pay off this guy over here. Then that's ordered by the court, and and what happens is the sheriff sells it, and then that becomes the sheriff's deed. Uh, one of the things uh, that is important, though, about this particular deed is that the sheriff's deed doesn't have any warranties. And why, you may say, well, why doesn't it have any warranties? Because the sheriff hasn't lived there to really understand Anything really about the property hasn't lived there for years to know that, hey, you know, during the summer there's some people that use an easement or that there's, uh, you know, or a right of way to cross over the property to get to their house in the back. They wouldn't have any idea of any of that stuff. So basically, the sheriff's deed doesn't have those kinds of warranties in them. So that's why they say uh, right here, a sheriff's deed can be, I'm sorry, a um, sheriff's deed or commissioner's deed carries no warranties couple other kinds of deeds that you may have, and it just can go on and on. It really depends upon who's really doing this and who's who's involved in selling it. You have a tax deed that's sold. If um, It says a tax deed is issued by the tax collector after the sale of the property that has been seized by the state, the county, or a local municipality for nonpayment of taxes due. Uh, again, no warranty of the deed is expressed or implied. Expressed means in writing. An implied means that, hey, I thought that came along with it. Neither one of those are there in that kind of a deed. Then also you have something called the deed of reconveyance. And it says here that it doesn't, it doesn't really, they're not going to really cover that in this chapter. But what they mean by a deed of reconveyance is that in California, as I've mentioned probably several times, we do not really use mortgages. What we use is we use something called deeds of trust. And we have three parties to this deed of trust. We have somebody borrowing the money. Sometimes we can refer to them as the borrowers. We could say they're the consumers, the homeowners, whatever you want to call them. But their correct title in the deed of trust is they're called the trustor. The person that lends the money, which might be the bank or a private individual or a Wells Fargo or Bank of America or somebody like that, they're called the beneficiary. So the lender is the beneficiary, the borrower is the trustor, and the person that holds the title to the property, the or if you will, the authority to sell the property, in the event of nonpayment by the person that's borrowing it, is called the trustee. Okay. Now what happens is is that this trustee has this power, and they continue to have that power until the person that borrowed the money completely pays the loan off. And usually you can pay the loan off in one of two ways. One way is you sit there and you make all the payments for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever the length of the loan is. And at the end of that, the loan's paid off. You have a mortgage burning ceremony, if you will. The other reason why you may pay the loan off sooner is because you refinance the loan. That would be a second reason. So in other words, maybe you had a higher rate of interest on the loan, Maybe you started out at 8%, the interest rates have come down to 6 5 or 6%, and you refinance it. When you refinance it, you pay off that existing loan, and you record a new loan. Okay? And the third way would be where you basically sell the house, sorry, the third way you sell the house, and the person that's buying the house gets a new loan, and through escrow, that new loan pays off the old loan. Whenever the loan is paid off, though, there has to be some way to remove that from the chain of title or that that deed of trust actually exists. And the document that you use to remove that is called the deed of reconveyance. And in most cases, most cases, if your loans are with a financial institution, like a, fin- a normal financial lender, that's part of the normal process. The thing that you have to be careful of is if you do pay off the loan, that you actually make sure that that is taken care of. What you don't want to do is pay the loan off and find out you want to sell the house a few years later, And that deed of trust is still on the property. And now you're trying to dig through and find documents to clear that up. The second thing that I would say is that if you had a private loan, for example, somebody borrowed money or sold you the house and they carried back a loan, and now you've paid the loan off, make sure you get a deed of reconveyance from them. Uh, Otherwise, what will end up happening is you may very well have to go ahead through and start digging up all kinds of bank records and statements and everything else to prove that you actually paid it off, and it can be a nightmare trying to do it. So you want to make sure it's paid off. It's called a deed of reconveyance. Okay. On this page, they just show you an example of a quick claim deed. Okay. I won't go into any detail on this, but this is just an example of what one would look like. Again, it would be filled out. Typically, it's usually filled out either by, uh, if it's a title company, it might be a title company filling it out, or I'm sorry, an escrow officer filling it out. It could be an attorney filling it out. It could be a private individual filling it out. Who knows? But you fill it out. When it's all done, it has to be notarized and then recorded. Okay? And when you, remember, when you record it, you're telling the entire world, you know, that the action took place, and you have a central repository for these documents. Um A couple other things that we want to talk about here is uh, mortgages, okay? And again, I think we've mentioned this many, many times. What they're kind of stressing in this chapter here, and they've mentioned several times in the book, is that, you know, years and years and years and years ago, what we did is we went to the attorney to get everything done, and the attorney, you know, either hand-wrote something or they typed something or had the secretary type something or whatever, And what's happened in the last number of years, and I mean it's been going on for, I don't know, ever since I've been involved in real estate and they keep improving upon it, is that instead of going back to the attorney to have these documents created from scratch, what we've done is we've got now pre-printed documents. And that's the reason why I think I've mentioned in this class and other classes why, for example, if you're a real estate agent, you're going to go and use the California Association of Realtors forms, or if it happens to be something like a, uh, like a deed of trust or a note, you're going to use something that the title company has that is current and accurate and up-to-date, that it reflects the laws. By them using these pre-printed documents and having people fill in the blank or type in the blank means that we've now all agreed that that covers what the requirements are well enough that we don't have to go back to, to get an attorney to look at every document again because essentially, in fact, it's gotten to the point now where those documents that we utilize are usually reviewed by a group of attorneys on a regular basis to make sure that they're current, they involve, or speak to the current law, uh, so on and so forth. So anyway, and then again, they talk about a mortgage. Remember that in California, we do not use mortgages. We use something called Notes and Deeds trust. Uh, I'll just read out what this says here. It says, a mortgage is a legal document that pledges the property uh, of the borrower to the lender as security for the loan. This, again, was the area that was originally the exclusive domain of attorneys. While attorneys are still engaged in drawing up some mortgages, the advent of preprinted legal forms for residential transactions has served to lessen the involvement of the attorneys in this area, which is essentially the day-to-day work. In other words, you're saying, you know, this is something we can standardize and use over and over again, and attorneys can spend their time, their, their valuable time, better doing other things. Uh, mortgage law has traditionally been within the jurisdiction of the state law. To, uh, to be valid, mortgages a mortgage must meet the requirements of the state in which it was drawn up. The federal government, as we have seen, has become more involved in the field of mortgage lending in the past century, okay and has acted to preempt certain state laws. What we're talking about is when we talk about things like Fannie Mae, Ginny Mae, Freddie Mac again, it's the, those organizations started out as federal government organizations. Part of what they do is to standardize the lending process. They are the ones that say we will not buy loans from anybody unless they follow our rules. If you look at the bottom of an application to get a loan, it's a Freddie Mac Form 65, if I remember correctly, and it's a Fannie Mae Form 1003. Both of those are our talking or the organization started out from the federal government. And what they're doing when you fill those applications out and you get that information that they want, you are meeting the standards of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which means that if you meet all of those standards, meaning things such as you get the appraisal done by a licensed real estate appraiser, you get get the right credit reports, you lend money based on the right income to loan ratios. You do all of that kind of stuff. You only make the loan up to a certain amount. That fits all their requirements. So you're finding the federal government is extending their control over the states by just sanctioning or setting up organizations that have the ability to buy these loans, Okay, which has now reduced the role of the states in what they can do can do as far as mortgage lending goes. That's why it's important we understand this. Uh, the federal government has overturned state laws restricting the due on sale clause. Some usually lo- usury laws establish conditions that allow prepayment of mortgages and set ceilings on prepayment penalties. Okay, so they're doing more and more, again, to standardize this. Okay, one of the things that still stays with the states, in fact, down to the county, actually, is the recording recording process. So it says all states have enacted laws known as recording acts. These vary by individual state. The general intent of recording is to create a public, pub, publicly available record that establishes the chain of ownership of any individual property. Okay? That is so important. All you ever have to do is get yourself involved in any transaction where some documents have not been recorded by the public. You know, somebody sold some property to somebody... And they never disclosed it. They never recorded it. Now you're in possession of it, and you're trying to clean it up, and it cost you a fortune. That's why having those, and you can't find the documents. That's why you want to have them publicly recorded so you can go down and get them. Okay. Um, they did talk about, um, again, about uh, state chartered banks, and they also talked about uh, usury laws. Usury laws, if you remember back from Chapter 1 or 2, is basically where you're charging an interest rate that's an excessive amount of interest on loans, okay? And so these laws are, have been enacted to prevent that from happening, okay? Typically, they involve real estate loans, but they have not really, really, uh, the states are still have the authority when it comes to personal type loans, like auto loans, things like that, Okay? Um, going from there, let me see, I think we have a couple more things left. But going through there, we have um, want to talk a little bit about the modern role of the states. Okay? What do the states really do now? The states still control deeds and recordings, recording a law recording laws. In addition, they regulate appraisers. So that's why we have something called the Office of Real Estate Appraisers in California, O R E A. And they also, uh, they also are meeting the guides of an organization called the Appraisal Foundation. That's why uh, the Office of Real Estate Appraisers, for example, will say, you know, uh, like, currently right now, you cannot do your own appraisals unless you have, I think it's over 2,000 hours of, of appraisal experience under the guidance of a licensed real estate appraiser. And then when you get all done with that, you're limited on what kinds of properties you can appraise, the limits... On the value of the properties, and you're also it also involves what the training is. So if all you've done is say single-family townhouses and condominiums, doesn't mean that you can run out and do a shopping center. Okay, so they've they've enacted those laws to try to protect, uh, if you will, lenders from having people lending money on property in which the value to the property is really not correct, and that was passed mainly because of the big uh, savings and loan debacle that we had where, you know, there was fraudulent appraisals, illegal appraisals, however you wanted to look at it. So we have legislation that was passed there. That's controlled by the state, though. Also, real estate agents. Real estate agents, again, uh, when we talk about real estate agents and you have a sales license, we're talking about you may very well have a sales license that is allowing you to solicit loans, or originate loans, that's controlled by the Department of Real Estate, which is a state organization. You may very well, if you sell real estate, you're going to have to have a license for the uh, California Department of Real Estate to sell it. That's a sales license. So, again, the state is regulating that portion of the business. Also, if you're going to be making loans, originating loans through private investors, you have to have a license to do that. That's coming from the state. Okay, so it's state that controls that. Let me see. Uh, Just going on from here, appraisers and loan brokers. Okay, so that's what the state says. In areas of anti-discrimination consumer law and and anti-redlining, many state laws are actually more severe than federal law. Also, many states have state lending agencies. So they're just kind of talking all about that. Now, um, I went on from there, and I thought that this was important. It said the state lending agencies provide, uh, provide state financial assistance at two levels, okay? That's the state agencies now. The first level consists of loans to communities to attract new businesses to the area, and the second level consists of loans to improve housing in local communities. That's why we have, um, uh, I think it's called the Sacramento... Uh, redevelopment agency that's downtown, if I have the whole title correctly, okay? Um, Some states and local communities also have special low-interest programs for teachers and other professionals that allow state and communities to attract and retain people in designated areas. That's, I know we talk about that in our internship class. In fact, we have somebody come in from the Home Loan Counseling Center that talks about this, but there are special, are special programs, that are for first-time buyers, that are regulated by these state institutions. They also have um, uh, special programs in some areas for people when they want to get medical people to come to that community to live and work, such as doctors and nurses. Or if they have an area that's impacted school-wise and they need teachers, they'll provide some kind of program for teachers to be able to get low-interest rate loans or some kind of assistance in helping to buy a home. That's why it's very, very important that whenever you're dealing with a client, you know, in fact, I've had a lot of lenders, you know, lenders tell me that. In fact, Michelle Dillingham, who writes an article, who writes a column and has for years and years in Sacramento Bee in the Sunday edition, she was a guest speaker at our internship class last year. And one of the things that she said is when people come in to sit down with her, a lot of times they come in because they've read some uh, literature, or some information or heard about some information about a special loan program. But in reality, when they come in, it ha- then she can assess their situation better to know that, hey, there might even be a better program than you knew about. Okay, they may come in there because they're a vet and they're interested in getting a home loan because they're a veteran, only to find out that they're also a teacher and maybe they're gonna qualify as a teacher rather than a vet, as a vet. Okay, so that's the idea. You know, you need somebody sits down and understands these programs. A couple other things I want to show you before we end is that I have stuck a few other things at the Blackboard website. And, again, um, what I want to do is to basically um, uh, make sure that you uh, are aware that these resources are available. Also, uh, the other reason why I want to do this is because... um, you're going, to, you're going to find out that maybe the book only has a little bit of information. For those of you that are interested in a lot more, I want to get you in a place where you can find out a lot more information. One of the things that the book, this chapter, talked about was something called due-on-sale clauses. <clears throat> due-on-sale clauses means specifically that when a, uh, a property is transferred from one person to the other, sold, if you will, sold, then the lender can turn around and say, excuse me, I made the loan to you. I'm not going to allow the new person to take the loan over. I want them to either get a new loan with me or get a new loan from somebody else and then pay off the existing loan. Normally, lenders do not want to allow people to take over a loan. For example, if you had a loan at, say, 5%, and now the interest rates are at 7%, uh, the uh, the lenders got themselves in a lot of, tr- not a lot of trouble, but were losing a lot of money because people were, uh, you know, in the 70s and the 80s were ma- assuming existing loans, you know, where, uh, you know, like a 5% loan and allowing the new buyer to take that loan over. And there's a lot of benefits to that, by the way, too, because you sometimes don't have as many fees associated with it. You may not have an appraisal fee points and things like that. But what they did is they said, wait a minute, we don't want to do that. There's two things happening here. Number one, we don't have the ability to really check this person out to find out whether or not they're going to be able to afford the property. And second of all, even so, I know we made that loan commitment to you for 30 years. On the average, most of our people pay those loans off in about seven. So we want to have some control over that. So what they do is they have a due on sale clause. So what I did is I put a little link in here to a, uh, if you will, I think it was a website by this particular author here, which is a um, talks all about this due on sale clause. Also the reason why I put this in here, <clears throat> excuse me, is you see where there's some federal legislation in here. In 1982, there was a uh, let me see there was the Garn St. Germain uh, Act that was passed in 1982. And so consequently, when I looked all this stuff up and getting ready for providing information for you, this is some of the stuff that I found. And that act specifically, one of the things it spoke to was something called due on sale clauses. So what I thought was important was to include this, and I'll see if I can blow this text up here just a tad. Uh, That might be as big as I can get it. I think it is. Okay, so I'll go back to normal. But basically, it talks about the due on sale clause it talks where where did it come from? Okay. Uh, is there really a do on, you know, in other words, does that mean every any time you change title to the property you have to pay it off? The answer to that is no. And what it does is it goes down here, down near the bottom, and it gives you a list of those times in which you may have a property in which the do on sale clause does not have to be affected. And some of the ones would be, for example, if you're going to go ahead and get a, you know, you're going to get another lien on the property, such as another loan, or you're going to make your loan junior, that would be one. The creation and purchase of uh, security interest and household appliances, they just go down here. Uh, transfer, in other words, if you die and leave it to somebody else, okay, Uh Granting a leasehold interest, so if you decide to rent it out or lease it out, you don't have to do that. So uh, transfer resulting from the death of a borrower, transfer where the spouse or the children of the borrower become the owner of the property, so it's left to the kids. There's certain situations, so you need to be aware of what they are, and I thought that article was a pretty good article to include in there. Um, I'm going to show you, let me see, I may have time to show you a couple other things. Believe it or not, I could not find... a a article in Wikipedia for grant deed but I did find one for warranty deed why there's not one in there for grant deed I really and truly do not know but in here this talks about in more detail about a warranty deed what a warranty deed is okay so you have time to look that up and then finally There was an article. There was uh, something in here called the quick claim deed. So this is explaining in more detail what this quick claim deed happens to be. So I thought that that was important to give you this resource. The the, actually this um, Wikipedia is a great resource. I have found that they have uh, articles or information, if you will, about things like legal descriptions, government survey type descriptions. There's just tons and tons and tons of different information that. Using other kinds of resources, I found very difficult to find where I, but I could find it here. So, anyway, that pretty much covers the information that this happens to be in this particular chapter, which deals with state um, regulation and lending. The big thing that we want to emphasize here is remember that you have different government bodies that have laws that control the lending process. Remember, you had the federal government, which really got its powers and determine what they could do and what the states could do from the United States Constitution. Remember, we talked about uh, the Tenth Amendment, where it really said that the states have everything the federal government has not decided to take control of, and then we talked about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. I would really highly recommend you spend the time to go over this. Make sure you're really clear on where these laws come from so you have a better understanding and, and what you're dealing with when you run into some sort of a problem in the lending business. Also remember that the federal government is extending its, its role by setting up things like Fannie Mae, Jitty Mae, and Freddie Mac. With that, thank you very much for watching, and I'll see you back here again for show 12. Have a nice day.